Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. The word gospel means good news, and the life of Jesus Christ is the greatest news that we could ever hear as human beings. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. As we've been trekking through the life of Christ, we've been highlighting different points in his life. And in these different points in his life, we've seen that we can have a lot of hope for our lives. And that's something that we're going to zero in on today. But before we get into obedience, I'd like to talk about something else first. Worship. What comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? For some of you, it may be music. The way that the, they were playing guitar and singing a moment like this where we were all singing together. Maybe you think of that when you think of worship. Maybe you think of a church service, the gathering of believers together to grow in the Lord. Maybe you think of a homeless outreach. Maybe you think of a ministry that you specifically help in thinking, that's how I worship God. Or maybe you're more academic and you think of a synonym or a definition for worship. Maybe you think of the act of adoration or the act of revering. What comes to your mind when you think of worship? A couple of weeks ago, I asked my youth students the same exact question, and their responses were pretty similar to that which I listed off. As a church, this is generally what we think of, and there's nothing wrong with that. All these answers are correct. These are ways that we can worship God. But what is the highest form of worship? What does God say he ultimately wants from us, from his people? That's what we're talking about today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15 if you haven't done so already. Before we read in 1 Samuel 15, we'll be jumping a little bit throughout the chapter I'd like to give you a little bit of background. In 1 Samuel 15, a lot of you will remember the character in the Old Testament, King Saul. He was the first king, human king of Israel, uh, as we look at history. And King Saul being the first human king, prior to that, the people of Israel were led directly by the Lord. It was a theocracy. The Lord himself was leading the people of Israel. But the people decided, they, they came to God and they had decided, Lord, we want to be led like the other nations. We want a human to lead us. And so you see King Saul portrayed in the Old Testament. You see him as the tallest, the strongest, the most handsome guy in any room when he was chosen to be king. But although his outward appearance was something to be admired, his inward appearance was somewhat of a disaster. You constantly, as you look through his story, and I'd encourage you to read it later, 1 Samuel chapter 10 all the way through chapter 15 and even a little bit after, you constantly see him doing the things that he should not have been doing. He was constantly being disobedient to God. And that's where we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We see a prime example of his disobedience in 1 Samuel 15. So hopefully you're there now. If you're not, you can just go ahead and follow along. Uh, Go ahead and look at verses 1 through 3 as we look at the Lord speaking through the prophet Samuel directly to King Saul. Look at what it says. 
And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God was directly calling King Saul to kill and utterly destroy every man, woman, child, animal, literally any living thing among the Amalekites. And the reason for this, as we saw in verse 2, was God's judgment was coming upon the Amalekites because of what he had done to the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. And you can read that later if you want to. He came up against the people of God as God was bringing them up out of Egypt. And it was now time for God's judgment to fall upon them. And because of Amalek's sin, it would affect the entire society. However, as we go on in chapter 15... We see that when Saul gets down there, he doesn't kill everything. Look at verses 8 through 9 in chapter 15. It says, And he, that Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, which is the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Saul decided to keep the king alive as well as the best of the livestock. And if we look at historical context, what it usually meant when someone kept the king alive, if you took a king captive, usually that means you're taking his entire household or people in the household, like some of his slaves and things like that. So we can assume that Saul didn't just keep Amalek alive, but he kept a few people even in his own house alive. Now later on, we see in the book of Esther that one of the consequences of Saul's disobedience was Haman. If you remember from Sunday school, Haman in Esther chapter 3 verse 1 devises a plot to destroy the Israelites. Now this led to terrible plot and all things like that. And directly from Saul's sin, because he had left the king alive, consequences came to the people of Israel. But that's another message for another time. After this disobedience from Saul, the Lord speaks with the prophet Samuel on this subject. And Samuel declares an incredible spiritual truth. To Saul. Let's go ahead and look at their interaction really quickly. After this all happens, God tells Samuel what happened, and he calls Samuel to go and speak with King Saul. Let's go ahead and look at verse 20. Go ahead and skip down in chapter 15 to verse 20. In case you're wondering, Cameron, why are you reading so many verses? If you can see the tabs of my Bible, we're going to be reading a lot of verses, so I hope you enjoy reading the Bible. Let's go ahead and start in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. And Samuel said, listen to this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Because of Saul's blatant disobedience, we see that the Lord rejects him as the king of Israel. As a result of this disobedience, we see 
what the Lord desires in his people more than anything else, complete obedience. After a track record of disobedience from Saul, we then see his kingship start to go into decline after this very moment. He goes into a very dark place. In fact, if you want to turn a page over, look at what it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Look at what it says. Oh, let me turn a page over myself. Look at what it says. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Because of Saul's blatant disobedience, he was in a place of torment. Saul's position as king among the people of God caused him to think that he could act however he wanted. And this led to Saul being rendered useless to the Lord. Do we have the same mindset as the church? As Saul thought his position as king allowed him to act however we wanted, or however he wanted, do we think that because of our position in Christ, we can live however we want? As the Church of America goes, I would argue that we have fallen into this same mindset. Oh, we, we obey God, we just don't do it in complete obedience. Lord, I, I may be smoking weed, but at least I'm helping at kids' church. Lord, I haven't given the gospel to my coworker, but at least I'm not addicted to pornography. We as the church compare ourselves and our obedience to God to the people around us and thus justify why we don't do what we should be doing. The reality is that we should not compare our obedience or lack thereof to others, but rather we should be comparing our obedience to the Lord's obedience. While Jesus Christ was here on earth, he gave us an example of what complete obedience to God really looks like. While God the Son was here on earth, he perfectly obeyed the will of God the Father. Now, that may cause a question in your mind. Cameron, how can you say that God can submit to God? <laughs> how does that even make sense? This goes back to what Pastor Walt preached on last week. We can't fully understand the Trinity. It's impossible. Us as finite beings cannot fully comprehend an infinite God. We shouldn't get so caught up in the mysteries of theology or how did God submit to God that we miss what God has very plainly shown us through his son. God has declared very clearly what he expects from his children, and we are God's children. It is through the life of his son, Jesus Christ, that we can have an understanding as to how we should conduct ourselves as God's children. And today we aren't going to go through an exhaustive list of how Jesus was obedient. We already know that he was obedient in every way. It's, it's very clearly seen throughout scripture that he was perfectly obedient. But today we are going to highlight three critical moments in Jesus's life when he was obedient. And in looking at these moments, we can divide these moments into two sections. As we look at the moments when Jesus was obedient, we can understand how to worship God in the highest form, which is through complete obedience. So when it comes to the obedience of God, if you're taking notes, you'll see that the first point is the examples of obedience. That's going to be the first section we go over. Now we're going to cram two of the moments of Christ's critical obedience into this one little section. And if you want to write this down, you can as well. But the first thing, and as far as examples of obedience goes, we see Christ's obedience in resistance. 
Christ's obedience in resistance. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to primarily focus in on the gospel of Luke. We've been going through each of the gospels and jumping around different areas of Christ's story while he was here on earth. Today we're going to focus in on the book of Luke, and that's primarily where we're going to sit on today. But Luke chapter 4, we're going to do quite a bit of reading. And now to give you some context, Jesus has just been baptized. Okay, this is God's will. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. You can read the story later if you want to. But in chapter four, we see that directly following his baptism, God, through the Holy Spirit, leads God the Son into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And in this moment, in chapter four, we actually see Christ's resistance. We're gonna read 13 verses, so go ahead and start in verse one with me as we read this. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all the authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I give to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We see that immediately after Jesus' baptism, like it said, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And we see in this moment, in this chapter, the first 13 verses, we see three areas, three ways that Christ was tempted. First, it was to make stones into bread. Secondly, it was to bow to Satan. And thirdly, it was to show his authority or to prove his deity as being God. It's very interesting because each of these temptations ties directly to the three categories of sin. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. You can write this down and read it later if you'd like to. But this is what it says in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Listen to this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those three verses tells us that every temptation, every sin that you could possibly fall into or go through will fall into one of three categories. It's either the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. And Jesus resisting each of these temptations that Satan brought before him was Jesus resisting everything that is in the world. By not turning stones into bread, he denied his hunger and so denying the flesh. By not bowing to Satan, he turned away an easier way to gain the kingdoms of the world rather than going to a cross. And so he denied his eyes. But by not jumping off the temple, he humbled himself to the Father to be exalted at his perfect timing and so denying the pride of life. When Jesus resisted these temptations, he succeeded where humanity failed. Now, I don't want to get too much into it, but if you guys will remember way back in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve didn't exactly stand up to par. 
When they were tempted by Satan, they utterly fell. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the temptation of Adam and Eve. Satan lied to Eve and she fell for his lies. But look at how the Bible says Eve saw the forbidden fruit. Listen to this in Genesis 3 verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The fruit represented what every sin to ever exist would be. It was good for food, so it would satisfy her flesh. It was pleasant to her eyes, so it would satisfy her sight. It would make her wise, and so it would satisfy her pride. Jesus succeeded where humanity could not. Now, as humans, we tend to follow suit with how Eve fell. We tend to not be obedient in the area of sin, and that's pretty much what the gospel is based on, that we're sinners and we're in need of a savior. But the very sad thing, the terrible thing, is that sin has crept its way into the church. We are gluttonous, and we joke about it. We are liars, and we shrug it off. We are lustful, and we hide it. As the church, we've stopped resisting sin and started embracing it. We say things like, in our own heart, of course, not to other people, but as good Christian people in our heart, we try to reason with our sin. My porn isn't hurting anyone, so why deal with it? I yell at my kids once in a while, but they'll get over it. So I lied on my resume to get the job. Big deal. I'd like to read to you guys Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to how Paul puts it in regards to sin. Romans 6, 1 through 2. If you want to write it down and read it later, you're more than welcome to do that if you just want to listen. But this is what it says. What shall we as the church, as the people of God, say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? As Christians, we cannot love the very thing that Jesus saved us from. A married man shouldn't run to the arms of a former lover. A freed man shouldn't run back to a life of slavery. And a Christian should not run back to sin. So why, church, do we do that? Jesus saved us from sin, not for sin. Yet the church treats the sacrifice of Christ like a credit card to be able to sin. Jesus saved us to set us apart from the world, to make us different, to make us holy. But by allowing sin into our personal lives, we are no different from the world. If we continue to allow sin into our lives, we as the church will be rendered useless, just like King Saul. Listen to what James 4 verse 7 says in regards to sin. James 4 7, write it down and read it later if you want to. But listen to what it says in regards to sin as a message to the church. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Unless the church starts to resist sin, we will continue on the same downward slope that King Saul did. Unless we change something, we will also suffer the same consequences as Saul. And the Spirit of God will start to torment us rather than to bring us peace if sin is the thing that separates us from God, why do we embrace it? Like, really? Why, church? Why do we love our sin? We should really be following in Christ's example and resist the sin that so easily ensnares us. That's the first 
area of obedience, the first example of obedience that we're going to look at, and that is Christ's resistance to sin. The second area of Christ's obedience is Christ's obedience in submission. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. It's going to be a few pages to the right if you kept your finger in Luke. With that, we're going to see as Christ resisted sin, we're also going to see him submit to God. He perfectly exemplified what James 4, 7 is calling us to do as Christians. Now, to give you a little bit of background as you're turning there to Luke chapter 22, we're going to see Jesus. And he's in a moment where he obviously knows what God has called him to do, and that is to go to the cross and die for a rebellious creation. But we're going to see the mental anguish that Jesus went through before he went to the cross. Hopefully you're there in Luke chapter 22 by now. Go ahead and look down at verse 39, and you guys can follow along as I read this. It says, And he, that's Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Pause right there. We're going to continue reading. But just so you guys can understand, when Jesus is saying, Father, let this cup pass from me, he's referring to the wrath of God that he's about to take on the cross. Go ahead and look at verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And listen to this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Many of us know how the story continues after this. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He goes to a cross and he is the perfect sacrifice for all of humanity that we could be restored to a relationship with God. As Jesus ended up on the cross, we tend to sometimes think that that is all where his suffering was. But in reality, very rarely, do we pause and think about what Jesus went through before the moment of the cross. The suffering of Jesus for humanity did not begin on the cross, but rather the suffering of Jesus began in the garden. The name of that garden is Gethsemane, where Jesus was right now in Luke chapter 22. I love the way that Pastor John Corson puts it. He says, In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam stood in rebellion against God. In Gethsemane, the last Adam, Jesus, knelt in submission to God. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam was sentenced to work by the sweat of his brow. And in Gethsemane, the last Adam agonized so deeply that blood flowed from his brow. Jesus knew very clearly what the will of the Father was, and that was to go to a cross to die for rebellious creation. Now, Jesus did not desire to suffer in this way. He didn't. He did not want to go to the cross and suffer. But as the time drew nearer, the reality became more stressful. And as the reality became more stressful, the son submitted all the more. Rather than stand in disobedience and rebellion, he knelt in obedience and humility. The word Gethsemane, the garden where Jesus was, literally means oil press. And I've had the privilege and blessing to be able to go to Israel and see these oil presses. It's a very incredible sight. But it also gives us a very graphic picture of what Jesus went through in that garden. Jesus was truly pressed. Look at verse 44 again. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
Many scholars will come to one of two conclusions of what verse 44 means in talking about this great stress that Jesus was under, specifically about his sweat. The first conclusion is some scholars will say that Jesus was suffering from a condition known as, I'm going to try and pronounce this, hematohydrosis. I think I said that right. In other words, what it means is when a person is under so much stress, the capillaries in their forehead begin to pop and blood literally starts to trickle down their forehead. And it can only happen under extreme intense pressure and stress for a person. It's a very rare condition. But other scholars will look at this verse and they'll say that Luke is using a simile, trying to explain that Jesus is sweating so much that the sweat is pouring from him like blood from a gash wound. Either way, it's obvious that Luke is highlighting the mental stress that Jesus is under in this very moment. Jesus didn't want to suffer the way that was necessary for all of humanity. However, with that, despite what Jesus wanted, he submitted to the will of the Father. Even though it was uncomfortable, even though it was painful, Jesus did what God wanted. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley, with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the ccciv.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.